Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute in Exile. <laughs> we're, we're glad to have you folks here and uh, we're very proud to say that in about two months the construction on our building will be complete and we'll be back in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. But for now, we're glad to be over here at the Undercroft Auditorium to discuss this book, FDR Goes to War. A long time ago, I went to Mayfield High School in Mayfield, Kentucky, and in my senior year, I was the co-editor of the high school newspaper, The Cardinal, and I think the features editor that year was my classmate, Anita Prince, and she has gone on to bigger things. She got married, for one thing, to Bert Folsom. Um, she got two history degrees. She worked for President Reagan and Senator Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Uh, she was a presidential elector, and most recently she has directed Hillsdale College's Free Market Forum for five years. Uh, her co-author and husband is Burton Falsam, Jr., who holds a Ph.D. from the University of Pittsburgh. I actually visited Pitt for the first time last fall, and saw something I'd never heard of, which I'm surprised at, the Cathedral of Learning, which is the second tallest university building in the world. The tallest one, as you might guess, is in Moscow, where they always thought building things bigger meant they were doing something better than capitalism. But this is a 42-story university building, uh, the first few floors of which are built like a Gothic cathedral. So it is just an amazing thing. If you're ever in Pittsburgh, take a book and go and spend some time in the Cathedral of Learning. But since then, uh, Bert has taught at a couple of different colleges and now holds the Charles Klein Chair in History and Management at Hillsdale College. He also serves as Senior Historian at the Foundation for Economic Education, where you can find some of his articles at fee.org. He has published seven books, including The Myth of the Robber Barons, now in its sixth edition, in which he explains the difference between market entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs, which is a good text for today's uh, increasing discussion of the differences between crony capitalism and free enterprise. His work on the administration of Franklin Roosevelt began with his book, New Deal or Raw Deal, How FDR's Economic Legacy Has Damaged America. That came out in the fall of 2008, just as everybody was saying we needed to emulate what FDR had done, so it got a lot of attention. And his newest book is FDR Goes to War, which he co-authored with Anita. As I said in my book 15 years ago, Libertarianism, a Primer, in many ways we're still living in the Washington that Roosevelt built. The welfare state, our global interventionist foreign policy, the president as the dominant figure in the political system, all of that goes back to FDR's transformation of politics and policy. So it's important to study and understand how FDR governed, how he changed what had gone before. And it also, I think, has an additional importance for libertarians, and that is that the libertarian movement sort of arose in opposition to Roosevelt's New Deal and imperial presidency. And I think particularly, if you wanted to pick a date and say, when did the libertarian movement begin? Obviously, political movements have long 
prehistories and histories, but if you wanted to put a date, you might say it was 1943 when three women, Rose Wilder Lane, Isabel Patterson, and Ayn Rand, all published books about individualism, free markets, and constitutionally limited government, and sort of brought together the nucleus of a movement for those ideas. So that's why we occasionally turn here from public policy to history, and to why we are delighted to host this event today. So please welcome the co-author of FDR Goes to War, How Expanded Executive Power Spiraling National Debt and Restricted Civil Liberties Shaped Wartime America, Professor Bert Folsom. Let me just start with some opening remarks. We've got Franklin Roosevelt, the president, World War II, the event. You can't miss for an exciting book with those topics. You have a president just bold, dramatic, greater than life himself. You have the biggest military event in the history of the world, World War II. In covering this, we had the tremendous scope. And what we're trying to do in this book is give a history of World War II, 300 pages readable for today for people to grasp the war itself, the president who conducted the war. We have a chapter on Pearl Harbor, the dramatic attack. Anita wrote the section on Midway, the turning point militarily for the United States in many ways. You have the generals Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, Marshall, all conducting enterprises that were essential to victory for the United States. You have the atomic bomb itself, and here we have to give Roosevelt some credit for thinking ahead of what might be developed that would make a pivotal difference in the war. And then you have the end, finally, of the Great Depression, which dominated the thinking of a generation of Americans, coming to an end at the end of World War II. You have a lot to work with. We work with those elements in the book, FDR Goes to War. And I'd like Anita to start off by commenting on some of these features of World War II and Franklin Roosevelt. Go ahead. It's a pleasure to be here today with, uh, for Cato and uh, my old friend David Bowes. Thank you so much for coming. But yes, as, as Bert just said, our goal in writing this book was to make it larger than just an economic text, although that is very important. But it's to give everyone a book that in 300 pages or so you can read and you can get an overview of World War II whether you're a young person trying to learn about World War II, we have a son who's 26 years old, and I can assure you most of his friends know almost nothing about, about that entire period. It's just amazing. Also, we have uh, material that we think we, you've probably never heard before. So to get right into it, I want to set the stage a little bit uh, about the 1930s. And to explain that part of what led to World War II being such an upheaval for the United States were the policies of Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s. To, to give you some uh, statistics, uh, I'll be brief on those. For instance, factory output, the output of a American industry, increased every decade beginning in 1899 for the following 10 years, factory output was up 4.7%. From 1909 to 1919, it was up 3.4% every year. 1919 to 1929, the roaring 20s, factory 
production was up 5.1% each year. But 1929 to 1939, it decreased slightly every single year during the 1930s. So our industrial complex, of course, by 1939 has aged. It's uh, out of touch with uh, cutting-edge innovations that are going on in Europe and elsewhere. And suddenly we're faced with this, uh, with this problem of, of uh, a, a military complex in Europe, and we, can't, we don't have anything to compete with them. In the book, I mentioned that uh, Chief of, Army Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur at one point testified before Congress in 1935 pleading for enough money so that his army would have enough bullets for 100,000 soldiers. We're not talking about stealth bombers or cl- complex weapons here. We're talking literally about just even enough bullets to man 100,000 army. And uh, if even and I can certainly understand if you're not for uh, a strong military uh, American pr- presence overseas, which we don't necessarily need. But I do think that a strong defense of America wards off problems. And in the 1930s, we certainly didn't have that. And Germany was aware of that, and so was Japan. And that leads to a lot of problems. Well, the war, of course, comes along in uh, to the United States in late 1941, and suddenly factories have to be converted. What are you going to do? Well, overnight, for one thing, they restricted products to consumers. Overnight, in January 1942, you could not buy tires for your car. If your tires had been getting a little aged and you thought, oh, well, next week I'll run down to Sears Roebuck or whatever and get a new set of tires, you were out of luck. And the only way you could get another set of tires was to go before the government's tire board and prove that you had an essential reason for getting a new set of tires. Likewise, radios, bicycles, clocks, even clocks, uh, the common American could no longer purchase after the spring of 1942. All of those mechanisms were used in the war effort. Now, most Americans supported these sudden changes, and that was, of course, with the, with the wave of patriotism that swept through. Uh, everyone wanted to win the war. Most people did. Many people had uh, new fighting men overseas, and the way in which the war had begun with Japan bombing Pearl Harbor before the declaration of war was given to uh, the Secretary of War and Secretary of State in Washington, D.C. That angered everyone. But what did the government do to suddenly help the American economy meet the war emergency? Well, it did what it does a lot of the time, and it began regulating everything. The Federal War Production Board took control of the allocation of almost all materials in the United States and said where they would be used. It took control of the fuel supply, and it took control of industrial production. The War Production Board, WPB, is one of the most powerful agencies ever created by the federal government and would employ literally hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats by the end of the war. The government issued ration books to every American, even babies, In New York City alone, 7 million ration books were issued the very first week that rationing went into effect, which was the spring of 1942. And, of course, without ration stamps from the ration books, you couldn't purchase shoes, meat, gasoline, many other items. 
And as soon as the ration books were issued, there are always these unintended consequences. Uh, crooks discovered that these ration books were easy to copy. Now, sometimes we have a picture of World War II and the, the solidarity of the American people, but it's like any other time. There's a great deal of, um, of craftiness in human nature, and the incentive became uh, two thieves. Let's just print our own ration books, and they did by the hundreds of thousands. It was big business. Also, the theft of ration coupons was big business. Uh, there is an account... Uh, of, a, of a veteran coming home after serving in the war overseas, coming back home to central Indiana during the latter days of the war. And he's uh, at a rally, a high school rally in central Indiana, uh, giving his story of fighting the Japanese and all of these hardships he endured. And he went outside to the parking lot after the rally, and someone had broken into his car and stolen his gas coupons. So America wasn't quite as solid as sometimes I think the rosy picture that is painted of the war years. There were a great many struggles. But by and large, most Americans did support the war and, and of course, wanted uh, the United States to win it. Entrepreneurs had to come up with new things on the good side, such as uh, aircraft manufacturer. That's where we lagged behind almost, uh, I would say, the, the most glaring example. For instance, in 1940, Henry Ford was asked to get behind mass production of aircraft. This is before we entered the war, but uh, they knew that he was good at assembly lines. What can we do to mass produce airplanes? Ford sent his son Edsel and some of his top executives out to California. California in 1940 was one of the main places where aircraft were built. That seems strange today. And do you know why that was so? Because most of them were put together outside. That sounds just unbelievable, but they were putting planes together one at a time out in the California sunshine. Well, you can't build 10,000 bombers doing that. It would take you forever and a day. Ford had to figure out how to do an assembly line for B-24s, and in typical Henry Ford fashion, he owned a farm near Ypsilanti, Michigan. He turned his farmland into a bomber plant called Willow Run, and the bomber plant had the largest room in the world to build B-24s. It even had a curve in the assembly line because it was in Washtenaw County, and he didn't want to go over into the county where Detroit was because he didn't want to give those Democrats any tax money. So the assembly line curved around, too. Another huge uh, success during World War II that we often don't realize is the development of penicillin. Penicillin was not available before World War II. Now, sulfa had just been developed, and it was a great breakthrough. And as we mentioned in the book, after Pearl Harbor, one of the few success stories in the spring of 42 was that not one injured man who was injured by the Japanese bombing at Pearl Harbor had had to have an amputation due to infection. This was a new, this was a new world in, uh, in military medicine because the sulfa had prevented the infections. They'd used it liberally, and it worked, and everyone was thrilled. But the problem with sulfa was it didn't deal with uh, extremely deep wound infections in the abdomen or the chest, and those are so common in war. So penicillin had to be developed, in, and that was done with the help of the British. The British, of course, penicillin had been discovered in the 1920s, and even before that, Chemists knew that certain types of mold killed bacteria. But, of course, Sir Ian Fleming uh, 
publicized the discovery of penicillin in the 1920s. In 1941, the British brought over the strains of penicillin they had, and with their limited capacity, because they were so strained by the war effort, they had only even then been able to develop enough penicillin for five patients. They tried it on five extremely ill patients. They knew it worked very well. And they brought it over and said to the American Department of Agriculture, do you think you can grow penicillin? And they said, we'll try. And it was a great partnership between uh, the Department of Agriculture and private pharmaceutical companies. It still took a year and a half, but it revolutionized medicine for the American soldier and then eventually the American public because by 1945, penicillin was available for American citizens. And we were very soon... Uh, very quickly sending it overseas. So that's one of the uh, better success stories of World War II. But overall, the, the American public met the challenge of pulling together in this wartime emergency, knowing that the Japanese were sailing off the coast of California and knowing that Hitler had overrun Europe. They met the challenge and through the entrepreneurship and the, the spirit of the American people made these great contributions. Now, uh, Bert is going to come and talk a little bit more about the economic and the, uh, what got us out of, at the end of the war and of the Great Depression. Bert? Thank you, Nina. You know, we look at World War II and Franklin Roosevelt. It seems so long ago. It's 70 years since the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And you don't really realize that much of American politics from foreign policy to domestic policy, is shaped by the events that happened in World War II. Franklin Roosevelt was very anxious for an active role of government in the American economy. Of course, World War II provides that in a big way, and he has gone into some of those details. But Roosevelt wanted it that way after the war, too. That's the important thing. So you have, during the war, Franklin Roosevelt created the National uh, resources Planning Board. They were supposed to take ideas for after the war to run the American economy. Roosevelt picked this up and in his State of the Union speech in 1944, he talked about the Economic Bill of Rights. The Economic Bill of Rights, and I quote from parts of it, the, include the right to a useful and remunerative job. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to a good education. The right to adequate medical care. These become new rights, which Roosevelt described as the new economic bill of rights. Sometimes he called it the second bill of rights. And they roll off the tongue so nicely, don't they? A right to a decent home. Don't we all want decent homes? The right to a good education. The right to a useful and remunerative job. Roosevelt issued these, and these become the plan for after World War II. When the war is over, then these rights can be given forth. Now, if you think about it, if Anita has a right to a useful and remunerative job, then someone here has an obligation to provide that job. If I have a right to a decent home, taxpayers have an obligation to provide that home. 
if David has a right to adequate medical care, then there are hospitals, or through federal funding of some kind, those hospitals, those physicians are obligated to supply that medical care. How different this is from the first Bill of Rights. The right to free speech does not impose obligations on you to even listen to the speech, least of all accept it or pay for it. The right to freedom of religion, we're in a church here, the right of freedom of religion does not obligate anyone to go to a certain church. It just provides the opportunity for someone to practice freedom of religion. The first Bill of Rights by the Founders our rights. The second Bill of Rights impose obligations and involve the government in a big way. Now, what we see in the war is a huge tax structure being set up, which Roosevelt will want to use after the war and will be used after the war to fund more federal programs. In 1932, the year that Franklin Roosevelt was elected president, the income tax maximum that anybody had to pay was 25%. That's the most anybody had to pay. Top incomes. Most Americans did not pay income tax at all. Of course, in some ways, there's a problem with that. But we only had about 5% of Americans paying any income tax as late as uh, right before the war in 1940. By the end of the war, two-thirds of American families were paying the federal income tax. And it started at 24%. The exemption was only $500. If you made over $500, you started paying at 24%. That then increased in a progressive way up to a maximum of 94% on all income over That means that if you earn $300,000 on your third $100,000, you keep $6,000, you give to the government $94,000. A lot of people thought, hey, that might stifle entrepreneurship. Roosevelt believed it's essential providing decent homes, good educations, adequate medical care. This will be the basis of the funding of those kinds of actions. So what we see is a dramatic increase in the taxpayer base and in tax revenue. We see withholding introduced for the first time. Withholding, we have a chapter on that that will be introduced that will take money directly out of paycheck so the government can use it right away rather than having to wait for a year. What we see is a defense of Franklin Roosevelt by many people. I'd like to read from a Kentucky senator, Senator Happy Chandler. Democratic senator from Kentucky, the state where David was born, where Anita was born. But neither of them agrees with Happy Chandler, at least on this point. He said this, quote, All of us owe the government. We owe it for everything we have. And that is the basis of obligation. And the government can take everything we have if it needs it. The government can assert its right to have all the taxes it needs for any purpose, either now or at any time in the future. The Chandler view 
expressed on the Senate floor, we pulled this out of the congressional record, and many other quotations like this, are the defense of the idea of government becoming the, the, the main source not only of, of, for the economy, for providing jobs, for providing health care, and the tax revenue then going into the government so that the, the government programs can provide those kinds of jobs, can provide decent homes, can provide good educations. When we got to the end of the war, Roosevelt died, Harry Truman comes in. Harry Truman essentially agrees with Roosevelt on many of these issues. They're different kinds of people, two very different presidents. But on these issues, Truman is ready to go along with a lot of this. Truman comes in, the economic planners are wanting to institute this, but they think the war is going to go on till 1946. Germany, of course, surrenders in 45. It appears that it will go on for a long time. Truman did not know about the atomic bomb when he became president. That's one of the shocks. Roosevelt had never informed him that it was being developed. In fact, one of the odd things is, the day that Truman became president, he did not know we had an atomic bomb. But Stalin did. One of the ironies of history, the Russians knew we had it. The President of the United States did not. Happily, Secretary of War Stimson told that to Truman early in his presidency, so now he knew. And when he made the decision to use it on Japan in August, Congress is out of session. It takes most of America by surprise. August 6th, an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, August 9th on Nagasaki. Congress is out of session and the war is over. The planners had not had a chance to come in with their programs. Immediately, Truman wants to get them back into session. But by this time, some of the congressmen were saying, you know what, this 94% tax I don't think is going to get America back on track. The Keynesians completely believed it. Listen, here's, here's uh, Truman's Secretary of Treasury. It gives you an idea where the, the Americans were who favored this kind of intervention. Of course, uh, Lord Maynard Keynes had come out with his ideas that you need public works, stimulate aggregate demand, lots of government intervention, and you will eliminate unemployment through that. And so what Secretary of, Vin uh, Secretary of Treasury Vincent, another Kentuckian, by the way, Fred Vincent, uh, Truman's Secretary of Treasury, says, quote, he says it's right after the war, the Japanese have surrendered, and he wants massive government intervention, and he says, history shows us that business, labor, agriculture cannot in themselves assure the maintenance of high levels of production and employment. In other words, markets don't work. The government must assume responsibility and take measures broad enough to meet the issues. Reporter I.F. Stone completely agrees, as do many other reporters. Stone says, quote, new agencies, new men, new ideas, new directions are necessary and quickly if we are not to suffer a relapse into chronic mass unemployment. That the war's transfusions are no longer available to an alien capitalism. This alien capitalism no longer has the war's transfusion. Twelve million soldiers are coming home. Immediately we've got to have these government programs for them. They predicted without massive government programs, new WPAs, new programs to build roads, new programs to train people, Without these programs, in effect, Roosevelt wanted, or excuse me, Truman, Roosevelt also wanted to build new, like the Tennessee Valley Authority for the Tennessee Valley, uh, others all around the country, 
other types of uh, public works programs, other types of use of dams, building of public works, uh, very much in Truman's mind. Unless these things happen, they predicted, listen, we've got 12 million veterans coming home. Senator Kilgore of West Virginia said, I predict 18 million unemployed. It's going to be worse than the Great Depression. It's going to be worse than the 25% we had when Roosevelt came into office. Time Magazine. Others estimated, no, maybe just 10 or 12 million unemployed. That still is going to put it at about 20%. Predictions of very high unemployment. What do we get? Two senators, one Republican, one Democrat, say no. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Walter George of Georgia, said this. He supported a Revenue Act of 1945, which cut tax rates. I'll get into that in a minute. But he said this. If this Revenue Act has the effect which it is hoped it will have, it will so stimulate the expansion of business as to bring in a greater total revenue and create more jobs at the same time. In other words, I think we can get more revenue into the government, and I think we can get more jobs created if we cut the tax rates and allow businesses to expand. It was a model completely different from the Roosevelt model in the Economic Bill of Rights. And uh, he was, we had the Republicans agreeing. Senator Albert Hawks, Republican of New Jersey, said this. The repeal of the excess profits tax, in my opinion, may raise more revenue for the United States than would be raised if it were retained. And it was at 90%. We had a 90% corporate tax. And Hawks is saying, if you'll cut that tax below 90%, I think we can actually not only create more jobs because you stimulate business, but you will actually grow the economy and get more revenue at the same time. And uh, Hawks added this statement, Senator Hawks, you cannot get a golden egg out of a dead goose. Hawks led enough Republicans and Senator George led enough Democrats to pass the Revenue Act of 1945. And the Revenue Act of 1945 cut the corporate tax from 90% to 38%. Imagine that. 90% to 38%. It cut the personal income tax. Plus, it promised more cuts later. So this is the first one. This is all we can get through now. More are coming later. We cut what was known as the capital stock tax. You had to pay a tax on every share of stock you owned. We eliminated that. Eliminated regulation, slashed federal spending dramatically, which, of course, you can do. We no longer were going to need the tanks, planes, and ammunition. So enormous cutting of federal expense. The end result of this was a massive economic expansion. Businessmen said, finally, we've been under these heavy taxes for 13 years, and even more into the Hoover administration was not too good either. We've had a Great Depression for 15 years. Now the tax rates are cut. It's time to expand. If you look at that post-war economy, so much that we take for granted today. I mean, you got fast food, you know, McDonald's uh, gets going. You get the... the uh, uh, Holiday Inn, uh, you get television, Xerox, copy machines, all of these kinds of entrepreneurs and many more come to the fore after World War II. And we see a tremendous growth. One of the most exciting statistics here is this. We had 39 million people employed in civilian employment, non-military. 
that goes up to 55 million. The stock market increased by 20% in 1946. Private gross national product increased 30% for the first and only time it had done that in U.S. history. And furthermore, the experts were estimating, well, I think we will get $31 million into the federal treasury in 46, maybe 47. We got 43, excuse me, 31 billion. We had 43 billion. We increased that by more than 25% because the economy had expanded so much more than anybody anticipated. The end result is that we have 3.9% unemployment in 1946, 3.9% unemployment in 1947. The United States has this burgeoning growth rate, and when Europe, who is trying the other means, the Keynesian means, to get back on their feet, when they're failing, the United States is able to send tons and tons of food over to feed Europeans who at different points in the post-war period were dying at the rate of one per second. Those deaths were curtailed by free food that the United States sent over after the war. We sent that food, the economy recovered, and we cut the federal deficit during 1946 and 1947. Slightly, but we did cut it in part because the revenue so much exceeded uh, expectations. So what I'm saying is this. We have a lot during World War II that gives us lessons for today, what works, what doesn't work in an expanding economy, the taxes that we've come to expect today, the Economic Bill of Rights, the right to education, which we've seen, for example, with the student loan program and Obama, President Obama. We've seen changes with the housing right to a decent home, which goes with urban renewal first. Then you go to the Community Reinvestment Act in the 1970s, which promises very low interest rates to poor people so that they can have homes, which accelerates the mortgage crisis, which becomes unhinged in the last five years. The right to medical care we see with President Obama and Obamacare. So I'm simply saying this, the politics of today heavily shaped by what we saw happen in World War II. But what we saw happen in World War II, if we study it more carefully, is that we got out of the Great Depression by freeing up the economy and cutting tax rates, not by following the prescription to increase and perpetuate the high economic growth that we experienced during World War II. Thank you.